0: Acknowledge and emphasize how grateful I am for this community and how there seems to be a shared feeling of closeness even as we are physically distant from one another. This week I was out on a run and put it together that it's been three months since I've seen you all in person. Quarter of a year in quarantine. And it's tempting to look at that and only see the sad side, but honestly, I am continually amazed by our resilience as we join together to support each other. A global pandemic has closed the physical space, but can never close the church. I want to open by just holding a minute of space for anyone listening. Slow down your thoughts, center yourself. Think back to Gabby's exercise from Sunday. Take stock of how you're doing right now. In the midst of everything. Maybe you've donated this week. Maybe you've protested. Maybe you've felt lost. Maybe you've needed rest. In this minute, just name your need if you can. You are beloved. You are a blessing. You are worth it. Trinity Sunday. I'm becoming familiar with the lectionary still. It's not something I ever followed or preached on until working at Urban Village Church back in Chicago. I didn't know that there was a Sunday dedicated to celebrating the mystery of God's oneness and yet shared identity of God the Creator, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It seems strange to be at this intersection of a global pandemic, needed national action calling for police reform, Pride Month, and this lectionary text. My hope is that we can hold all of these things in tension. And understand why it is important that the world comes to a stop in support of some lives that have been in danger for far too long. Take a second to imagine a rope. Whatever color or design you want, but the important thing is that it is braided with three strands. Hold on to that image throughout this talk. When I worked in youth ministry and fidget spinners became all the rage, a lot of us thought we were so cool and so great in connecting with the youths by using it as a visual for how the Trinity works. If you're not familiar, fidget spinners are meant to be a tool to help kids focus in class by having something to direct their energy towards if they need to do something tactile with their hands to make it easier to pay attention. There are three blades that spin around the center, like a fan. And we would make the analogy that while it's one fidget spinner, it has three blades, each of whom would represent one of the persons of the Trinity. While you could technically have a spinner with one or two blades, it would function differently than when all three are present. I don't know why I thought I had somehow figured out the key to explaining the Trinity through a children's toy. I'm in seminary, but I'm not that smart. But And still, it was something physical to grasp to make the mystery of the Trinity a little more accessible. In that I'm not here to explain the Trinity to you, whether you subscribe to this or not. I am here to revel in the mystery that requires us to live in faith without having all of the answers laid out in front of us. The Trinity is not something which can be explained, but the mystery of the Trinity can be experienced. We're not trying to solve this mystery, but to live and be united with our one God, who is three persons. The more we relate to our God, the more we apprehend, and not comprehend, who this God is. We are drawn into this relationship, and we'll be able to enjoy this relationship not just now, For all eternity. With it being Pride Month, I can't help but take the time to do a little crossover episode here. I'm all for exegesis and digging into scripture. I'm sure you've all picked up by now I like a good bit of practicality and emotional space when it comes to my talks. As you all know, we here at Mission Hills are unapologetically affirming of LGBTQ individuals. And that is not something that we are willing to move on. It goes much deeper than just putting a rainbow out front and allowing LGBTQ folks to attend a service. There's a difference between acceptance and belonging, and we strive to continue to provide the latter. Acceptance looks like you are invited. You can attend what we have already created. You don't have to be afraid of showing us who you are belonging looks like your voice matters. We want you to actively participate in shaping the space that we are co-creating and continue to diversify the table. We are not the same without you. Humans are so complex and I have found a few of the following frameworks to be helpful for my own understanding of our complexities. I'll give my usual disclaimer that these don't work for everyone. In following with the theme of three, I think it's important to explore gender and sexuality in a similar way. Sometimes the assumption is made that one's gender and sexuality are all just one thing. However, your gender is different from your sexuality, which is different from your personhood. Your gender may or may not be what you were born as and this can be an incredibly painful process to realize depending on the kind of belonging you have access to. Your gender exists along a spectrum that includes male, female, and a number of non-binary and gender non-conforming identities. If you are born with a certain gender identity that does not match who you are, you may identify as transgender. This does not merely include transitioning male to female or female to male, but also encompasses non-binary identities. That is one pillar, or one blade, of the fidget spinner, if you'll indulge the analogy. Another pillar or blade, your sexuality. Whether you are straight, gay, bi, queer, ace, or other, this is separate from your gender. It is who you love, and all are so loved by God, no matter what the church has said. The third blade that I'll leave you with is your personhood. And I separate it out because there have been too many times that one part of your identity becomes how we are labeled and only given that. But we are so much more than one piece of ourselves. Aren't we? Your personhood is informed by your gender and sexuality, and your expression of both of those are informed by your personhood. But together, it makes up one collective human that is beautiful, strong, and a miracle all on its own. Three blades, one fidget spinner. Three strands, one rope. One verse that popped out at me from the psalm passage is, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. A song by one of my favorite artists, Towers, asks this question in their lyrics, Who are we that you are mindful of us? The lyrics are beautiful and I appreciate the subtlety of their style So you can't quite tell if it's directed at God or people, and I like to think that it's a both-and. If there is a God, a universal being, that has declared our worth, who is mindful of us, don't you think that God weeps for the one that has been cast out by the rest of the flock? The one who consistently doesn't receive the same amount of nourishment because the other sheep are hogging the supply return to that rope with three strands. Turn it over in your hands, tug at it, feel its resistance. It is so much stronger together than if it was a single strand. This is something that is true in organizing and really any form of community. Just as we see a designation of different roles within the Trinity, we see this mirrored through the process of making change and embodying the spirit. Perhaps you've heard this analogy before. It's been featured everywhere from a Moore song on white privilege, a new book by D.A. Horton, and several other talks and cries for black liberation. Your house catches on fire and you run outside, exclaiming, my house, my house, my house is on fire, we need to put it out. My house, it matters. What's inside, it matters. Help me, I need water to put out the fire. The neighbors come outside. They see the flames engulfing and charring the house. They take it in, without changing in demeanor, remarking, well, all houses matter. Shocked and confused, you respond, well, sure, but my house is on fire right now. What makes sense in this instance is to, of course, use the resources available to put out this fire while this one house is on fire, not save the water just in case the other houses do. Responses to the Black Lives Matter movement have included things like, all lives matter. Racism is over in this country. Why should we help them? There's a lot of noise surrounding the issue. And for some who maybe are newer to the conversation, it can be overwhelming to even take a peek at what's happening every single day as more lives, especially Black trans women's lives, are lost. I've had the privilege of listening, reaching, participating in conversations around privilege, intersectionality, and how it connects to the gospel call that's placed on our lives over the past multiple years. However, I know that these frames and conversations are far from universal and each person present here today in our our community is bringing to the table a collection of pieces. I personally like to decorate my beloved denim jacket with pins that represent my makeup, my DNA, my passions, and my visions. If I were to take each pin off and put it in a pile here as I hold them in my hands, this small pile makes up a small vision of who I am and how I present myself to the world. If each of us have a collection of pins that represent ourselves and our understandings of the world, of privilege, oppression, racism, all these big words that can and should take up space of our dialogue here, we would find it hard to find collections of pins that perfectly match or even perfectly complement one another. Could you imagine throwing all of the pins into a giant pot, a whole collection of the collective us and stirring? It would be difficult to find our favorite pins again, to name them, have others see them. That is why here at this church, we don't believe in a colorblind approach. Instead, finding life and truth in lifting up, seeing, and knowing each other fully. The approach I referenced just now refers to when some folks may, sa- may say something along the lines of, I don't see color as an appeasement of the uncomfortability that folks with privileged skin tones have with doing the work of knowing the other. Colorblindness strips down people of their identity and the richness, while forcing them to still live in the rest of the world that not only sees color, but targets them with acts of violence and torment. There are many ways to be complicit in our world that has made race a commodity, as well as a golden ticket only reserved for some just by the color of their skin. One of my favorite quotes that has risen out of social media recently is this, the system isn't broken. It was built this way. The system is one intended to marginalize and take advantage of those groups that are not the main privileged group, which is, in fact, nowhere near a majority. Not only do we have to acknowledge that there is something inherently wrong when one person gets a head start on life in more ways than one, simply by being born with a stamp of approval based on a constructed system of worth, But we also have to acknowledge that even in church, issues of racism exist. So here's my hot take on the quote about the house on fire. Hopefully it may add another dimension if you've heard the analogy before. In this story, the homeowner shouldn't be punished for not being able to put out the fire themselves. It also shouldn't be expected to do all the labor themselves. It can't be on just the individual to conquer the fire alone. It is expected that when this happens, help will come. Allies will come and assist the house, the people in need. It's not the firefighters house. What do they have at stake to run into a burning building or put out the fire? Even though they might not be in danger of losing their own house, they've received hours of training and consistently risked their lives To assist others. If a fire occurs, the homeowner is not punished for having their own fire hydrant ready to go. It is an expectation that there will be allies who are willing to rush into the fire with them. So where is the urgency to receive the training necessary to know when and how to grab the hose? I can perhaps make a very large, very grand statement. It would say that God's reaction to racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, etc. is righteous, holy anger. Jesus expressed righteous anger when he flipped over the tables of some peddlers and salesmen who were treating the temple like a marketplace. Jesus' response to people preserving profit Over others was to protest. When we are seeking righteous anger, we are angry about things that disrupt God's presence in the world. We care more about that than our own privilege and pride. And ultimately, righteous anger is born out of love for those that God loves. We seek to acknowledge that anger itself is not inherently wrong. Jesus experienced and acted upon righteous anger several times throughout the Gospels. However, there are moments when our anger towards ourselves or others is derived from hate, envy, jealousy, or other unrighteous starting points. We have an American individualist culture that teaches us that we must rise to the challenge, to take what is ours, that if someone does wrong against us, it's right to respond in anger. And other strategies. But here we see a warning against such actions. That once again we are called to radical grace. To choose a new response. And anger still perpetuates our society. Especially in America. I was listening to a podcast this week called Why is America So Angry? Anger is described this way. It's the densest form of communication. It conveys more information more quickly than almost any other type of emotion. There seems to be a lot to be angry about in America. Back in 1991, when Avril first conducted the study of average people and anger, the assumption was that the more mature people were, the more they learned to repress anger, and rarely, if ever, experience it. But in the vast majority of cases, expressing anger resulted in all parties becoming more willing to listen, more inclined to speak honestly, more accommodating of each other's complaints. People reported that they tended to be much happier after yelling at an offending party. They felt relieved, more optimistic about the future, more energized. The ratio of beneficial to harmful consequences was about 3 to 1 for angry persons. Even the targets of these outbursts often agreed that the shouting and recommendations had helped. They served as signals for the wrongdoers to listen more carefully and change their ways. More than two-thirds of the recipients of anger said they came to realize their own faults. Averell wrote, their relationship with the angry person was reportedly strengthened more often than it was weakened, and the target more often gained rather than lost respect for the angry person. I, as a white person who has never felt the fear to just be alive in the same way the Black and Indigenous people of color do, have no right to tell them how to express their feelings. My job is to support to hold up the arms of fellow protesters as they grow tired, to use my sphere of influence to push forward a gospel that reflects justice. Let's get this straight. As you look out in social media, and even in a number of your neighborhoods, you will see the impact of anger upon it. And that might look scary. But we must lean into allowing the Holy Spirit to be our compass when it comes to actively discerning what is holy, righteous anger, and how we are being called in. It looks drastically different from the defensive, fear-based acts of anger that are coming out of certain leaders' mouths right now. In this, stay vigilant, stay focused. The reality is that anger needs to be acknowledged and processed, even though most people are not comfortable with their anger in the first place. The reality is also that anger does not come alone, right? Just as in the other examples of the trinity of gender and sexuality, anger is not just a single strand. There's so much more to it. It is accompanied by the grief and the sadness. It is accompanied also by hope. All of this to say is that there is so much beauty in unity. And I wonder if we look at the Great Commission, just part of the scriptures for this week, not just as a call to go and spread justice throughout the nations, as this movement has spread across all 50 states and even 18 countries. I think if we're talking about what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, sometimes it really does look like flipping tables in the face of capitalism and institutional racism. We are all learning, we are reckoning, and we are reclaiming. So let this work continue to bring light and goodness into this world that has been plagued by selfishness and greed and power for far too long. As we continue into Pride Month, may we not lose sight of the fact that the first Pride was a riot, started by trans women of color. There's so much beauty in being able to hold all of these things in tension as we continue to educate ourselves about anti-racism, about LGBTQ inclusion, about the Trinity and what that might mean in our lives. The beauty is that we don't have to do that work alone. May we join to be three strands of a strong rope. May we come together on Sunday and protest the tragedies that continue to plague our country. And if this brings up stuff for you that you are uncomfortable with or want to continue to talk about, We are available. We want to come alongside you, wherever you might be. We also recognize that some of you are so tired. You've been doing this work for far too long by yourself, and it is about damn time that the firefighters show up and help. So we pray over this week that we may continue to be good allies, to be humble and recognize that there's a 100% chance that we're gonna do this wrong. But that doesn't stop us from having hope, from continuing to join together in pursuit of something that will hopefully bring justice more fully into this world.